1: Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. This is Laura. This is episode 173. Last week, uh, Sarah was, you know, sharing all about her life as I interviewed her, and so this week she is interviewing me. So, Sarah, let me know what I what I should tell you.
2: Well, I can't resist starting with the question that you gave me, which I thought opened a window to my soul. Tell me about middle school, Laura. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes,
1: so We moved when I was in middle school. So I started, I did sixth grade in North Carolina and I moved then summer before seventh grade and started seventh grade in Indiana, um, South Bend, Indiana. And the school had some issues, which I can now see, you know, as standard, like I was a nerdy girl, you know, I was... Going to stand out for that, regardless, and being new on some level. I mean, it was it was two schools coming together for seventh grade, so it wasn't like everyone knew each other, but a lot of people did, in fact, know each other, and so I was new in town as well. And you know, it, it was not really the best time of my life, I guess we could say. I and and partly I had worked ahead a bit in my previous school, so that had been a school that was more oriented toward accelerating people. So when I got to this new middle school in Indiana, uh, among other things that happened is that I was given a math book in seventh grade, just told to sit in a table by myself and teach myself. And so I tried. Uh, it was hard. I kind of lost much of the year. And it said this horrible thing that would then happen when we had substitutes. Like, so I was sitting in the back, like looking at this book, you know, by myself at the table by myself, we had a substitute. They started screaming at me like I was being, you know, un- ins- you know unsubordinate, insubordinate, how do you say it? Uh, so that had to get worked out that, in fact, this was what I was supposed to be doing, <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: and so then proceeded to then make fun of me every day for the entire time that the sub was there.
2: Yeah. So anyway. Wow.
1: But then um, in eighth grade, the, the school, um, you know, through various things, my, uh, I'm sure my parents had part of this too. I wound up taking a bus every day over to the high school
2: um, and doing math over there. And now you have a middle schooler.
1: Yes, but we're in a district that is more oriented toward academic, you know, things.
2: <laughs> I, I also think, I think we're in a different time. Like I think maybe the nerds day. The nerds day. It was, was just
1: early. Oh, gosh. You know, and what's funny about this, I think about, you know, personality, how this, this shapes is I'm not sure that I, my competitive strengths are necessarily in math. I would say that I am better at writing than I am at math, but that's what you become known for because that's the thing that then stands out that people are prepared to sort of recognize as a a difference in somebody or that should be at least dealt with. And so, yeah, it's sort of odd to me that I, you know, here I am a professional writer and everything I've spent my middle school years being known as the math nerd. So there you go. Interesting. All right. The math nerd. I love it. I, like you, though, I joined the cheerleading squad. We'll, we'll throw that <laughs> out there.
2: But in your case, it was to be cool. It was to no, be cool. Totally. Totally. It didn't work. <laughs> so what is the meal you eat most often? <laughs> well, probably pizza because you know, kids uh, insist
1: on having make your own pizza night. Uh, we either do DiGiorno's, which are, you know, we, we almost never do delivery of stuff, but we do the frozen pizzas in the oven, so the kids will have a DiGiorno's cheese pizza, and if we've thought ahead, my husband and I have some nicer freezer pizza that we've we've gotten with more adult toppings, or we do make your own pizza where we have the dough and then we can put our own toppings on it. So yeah, it, we we sometimes do steak on the weekends. Like Michael will grill steak; we probably have that fairly frequently as well. Um, so both both good meals, not bad to you know eat frequently.
2: Yeah. I like both of those things, especially pizza. Okay. What is one thing about parenting that has surprised you? Not necessarily something you're surprised that you do, although you can, you can do that, but just in general. Let's see.
1: I, you know, I think I, I spent a lot of time babysitting. So a lot of the kids stuff was more, you know, not, not so surprising for me, I guess. Um, I. Certainly, did not like pregnancy at all. I would say that you don't know how icky it is on the outside. It looks like, you know, nice, glowing, round people. (laughs) And then it's like, no, you have this other human being inside you that is battling for space. And so they're kicking and punching you constantly, and you know you're c- uncomfortable and such for much of the time. But you know, then you get a really cool kid out of it. And I obviously knew I liked kids, so so that's the that's a that's a good part about it. Um, I like to think I'm a fairly laid back parent. I know that I probably would come across as given that I, I write about time management, productivity. People might think I'm a, a type A kind of person, and I'm hundred percent not in much of my life i very much like yeah it'll be okay we'll we'll deal with it most things aren't that big a deal
2: is that more in parenting or in general probably
1: many things I mean, you know parenting gives you more opportunity to see that just because there are many opportunities to, for things to go wrong. But, you know, I, it's, you know, bad grades, they happen, fights, they happen, you know, things get lost. Um, but one way or another, you, you keep powering through. And um so, yeah, I, I don't know if I thought I would be slightly more type A than I am, but I just, you know, life's too short.
2: I love it. Okay. Well, laid back parent, Tell me about what you think your first big travel adventure as a family of seven will be.
1: Well, let's see. Once um, things open back up, I don't know how many trips we will take as all seven of us. I mean, we do some sort of general family stuff. Like, I mean, we're going to go skiing this winter, I think, barring, you know, new developments. Um, so going someplace for a couple days. All seven? Yeah, all seven. But th- obviously the baby's not going to ski. So I'll be just like in the house with the baby all the time while Michael's out with the other kids doing skiing. So, but, you know, and... In- in the future, I think we may split up some. I think we may um, not bring the baby on some trips uh, in order to let uh, the big kids do some fun stuff that they will not be able to otherwise. I mean, you think about stuff like amusement parks. They are really so much better for kids who are age five and up than under age five. And so with those, I'd like to do them without the baby. Um, I think I'd like to do more international trips you know, with the older kids, for instance, I, I did a trip not internationally because we can't really do that right now, but in you know in the u s with the big three kids uh, in you know mid September and that was a lot of fun and I think I'll do some of that with that split, knowing that I will probably get to do a lot of travel with Alex and Henry when they are the only two kids who are home um so I anticipate doing some more you know spring break and summer and you know Christmas trips maybe internationally with them when they're teenagers uh, and my older kids have moved out so I think it's okay that they're not getting to do some of that stuff maybe now and then yeah so
2: bringing seven people
1: anywhere is is a pain like it's just hard (laughs) like you can't even rent cars some places that have space for all of you so
2: that's why i was so curious like is there gonna be a party bus for your family but you know know, when we went to london um with the
1: three big kids in 2000 Eighteen, Like we could, we had such a hard time renting a hotel room because you couldn't rent hotel rooms for five people. You couldn't even really rent them for four. So we kept finding out like we had to do two everywhere. So, I mean, if like you could only do three people in a hotel room place, like we're going to have to get three rooms. We don't even have that many adults. Like how, I don't know. It's, there's
2: all sorts of limitations here. I think you may be a VRBO. VRBO VRBO all the way. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So... What? this is along the same veins. I don't know why I was in a vacation questioning mind. What is your most and least favorite Disney World rides?
1: You can sub Disneyland if you prefer. No, well, we've been to Disney World more often than Disneyland. Um, so, uh, you know, I really like um stuff like Avatar Flight of Passage, like you know, you're flying. Uh, it feels like you're flying, and you are looking at the screen, these beautiful scenes that make it feel like you are really traveling in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. So, you know, flying on your Banshee through Pandora. Um, I really like that one. I I also just like the, um, these are both at Animal Kingdom, by the way, the Kilimanjaro Safari, just because, I mean, seeing game in the wild, and I'm putting that in quote marks, you guys can't see this, but you're in Disney, so it's not really the wild. Um, But Michael and I went to Africa on our honeymoon, and it was really cool to see animals from a jeep and and you know with disney you're getting to see all of them you don't have to drive for six hours to see all the animals Um, i you know or you could go walk by tigers or something so so those are really cool in terms of ones i dislike anything that's like really spinning or giant so like the teacups like you know I, i mean why would you ever go to disney world just to go on the teacups but people do because they're like in disney or whatever those just just make me feel sick or any sort of tilt-a-whirl type you know thing that's not a ride at disney but anything that spins a lot um just i try to get the kids to go on by themselves or um try to convince michael to take them
2: okay what is your favorite distance and place to run well
1: i mean I like running slightly long, Um, you know, past 10 miles starts to hurt, um, but probably somewhere between five and 10 miles is good to feel like you've really done a workout, um, but you've not killed yourself for the next six days or something like that. So, you know, doing a 10K or something like that is probably a, a good distance. Anywhere that's really beautiful. I mean, right now I'm doing a lot of trail runs just around my house because we're recording this in late October, which is peak leaf season. So even just running on a trail, you know, half a mile from my house is just this gorgeous autumn scenery, which I really love. But overall in life, I love to run on the beach. Um, So anytime that I am near a beach and can run, one of my favorite runs ever was uh, when we were on vacation in San Diego and uh, we were near the beach and I was able to go run along the cliffs for about five miles or so. And it was just gorgeous. I mean, utterly gorgeous to run with the drop to this pounding Pacific surf, the wide open
2: sky and, you know, I I love it. So it makes you feel like you could run forever. Sounds amazing. We're going to take a quick break and I just made up a new fun question. Okay. My new made up fun question. If your family was going to get a pet and maybe they already have one that I don't know about, what would the pet be?
1: Well, we have fish. We have a hermit crab named Luna. So <laughs> Luna is a uh, little Luna Conway has been charted around to uh, various things. My poor kids, because I don't really want any other pets. We had a blessing of the animals service outdoors at church. And Ruth, who is the owner of Luna, brought Luna to be blessed. Uh, so, so Luna Conway, the permit crab, has received his or her blessing. I don't really know. <laughs> permit crabs, you know their gender. And yeah, that, that's what I would stay at. But my family is working really, really, really hard on the dog. Michael is working from home for the foreseeable future, which means that until the dog is in a position of being trained, like I would not have to deal with it. We have identified one child, namely Sam, who wants to take full responsibility for it. So it's not one of these diffused things like who wants to empty the dishwasher? Nobody wants to empty the dishwasher. And they definitely want to argue about who is not doing it if your siblings are doing it. So we shall see. Um, it may happen. I am not excited about that possibility, but if I don't have to do anything, which I know that many people have said that that's an impossibility, like mom always winds up doing everything, but I've said, like, if I wind up doing everything, we're going to have to find another home for the dog. Like I, I'm not doing this, but if they are willing to take that on, my husband is the backstop, then I guess that it may happen.
2: Wow. That was not expected, but exciting. Okay. We're going to go back to babyhood. What was your shortest and longest period nursing a child? And do you think you'll be the longest with your last one? Cause it's like the last one. Yeah, that tends to happen
1: with the last one, doesn't it? Um, so currently of, of, of the, the older four, Um, Jasper was the shortest and partly that's just because he was my first and it, you know, never, I didn't know as much about what I was doing to sort of keep milk levels up. Like, you know, in my mind, since I was working from home, I didn't need something like a pump because, you know, I'm working from home. I just nurse the baby when I have to. But then if you miss any feedings, you're behind. And so it very quickly Catches up with you. Um, I didn't know that you should pump an extra bottle a day just to keep it up, which I knew for the second one, and then that made it much easier. So Jasper was to about eleven months, but that last sort of two or three months was very minimal, just you know once at night in the morning. Ruth, we were to eighteen months. Um, she would probably have gone for a long, long time, but that that seemed you know okay. Uh, eighteen months there. Yeah, Henry may go for a while. I mean, we're at 10 months now. He is actually still nursing a lot. You know, he gets a pumped bottle in midday. We've sort of worked that out. So I have less interruptions. But, you know, I do morning, afternoon, night, middle of the night, sometimes multiple times middle of the night. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I think the daytime ones will and in the next, you know, probably by one, right, that's when that tends to go and then he'll be eating more sort of you know, switch over to milk for that. But the nighttime and morning ones, I, I don't see any real reason to stop that anytime soon, especially since I'm not traveling apart from him all that much, you know, except for if I, again, like if you do fun trips with the big kids. So yeah, I could, I could see that going probably to at least, you know, 18 months like I did with Ruth and then we'll see from there.
2: Awesome. All right. What do I have here? Well, I'm going to also throw you a dinner party and you are going with your husband, but you can invite any four other people that you would like. Who would they be?
1: Yeah, see, I this is hard cuz I don't know if there's like famous people that I really be all that. I mean, it, you know, it could be fun to have somebody who would probably be a good conversationalist if they were in their professional mode, like somebody like, you know, Oprah or any you know, any of the hosts of like, you know, Savannah Guthrie or, you know, these these people who do television so they have like they do their life professionally talking with people. Uh but, you know, they probably don't keep that up in their social <laughs> engagement. So I'm not sure, you know, it'd be fun just to get together with friends. I like, I like having dinner with friends, you know, it was fun to have dinner with you and Josh, for instance, I enjoyed that. Um, You know, so I'd probably be more oriented toward, toward things like that. Just, you know, having a a dinner with friends rather than, you know, somebody famous or powerful or historical, or I I mean, maybe if I could bring back Virginia Woolf, but she promised not to be crazy, like during our, our dinner. I don't know. We'll see.
2: That is awesome. Yeah. I had, I mean, I thought through this one, not to hijack your interview, but I thought through, and I was having trouble too, because the people that you're really excited to see that would be kind of intimidating. So that's kind of hard. It's like, yeah,
1: you wouldn't relax. Like it was like, what if I spill wine on myself? Like, <laughs> Michelle if, Obama, i like, this is great. I'm like, who's like, like, scared? I mean, what, what if I have like spinach in my teeth? Like, <laughs> so, I mean, it would be cool to meet some of these people, but you know, if we're talking like a dinner party, I, I guess it's just a different vibe.
2: Okay. So low key friend dinner yes. party. All right. Do you, I think you asked me this as well, but do you ever imagining? do you ever imagine retiring or do you think that you will continue to write and speak forever? Like, do you have an end goal in mind or just one day at a time? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't see myself
1: Ending writing um, because that's just so much a part of who I am is just creating content about stuff um, and expressing myself in that way. Now, whether I would do it in the format that I currently do is a is a different matter. I mean, speaking, I enjoy, but you know, I probably would not find myself interested in getting on a plane for a one hour speech in Chicago to some group that whatever you know at age seventy five like I feel like I will get tired of that, but you know i i it's both of us have have chosen careers that it's not really a hundred percent about you know the money or anything like that, and so it's a separate question from whether you need to work or not, um if you enjoy what you do and you really see it as the way you contribute to the world then there's no reason to stop doing that. And I think in, in both of our cases, we've continued doing it uh, even during a time that I think socially many people would have been accepting of us saying, oh, well, I shouldn't be doing this now. And there's something else I should be doing in terms of like, you know, raising children full-time, for instance, that we've kept doing it during time where it would have been, you know, there would have been an out if we wanted to, right? Um, and, and so, no, I don't, I don't think I would ever stop writing. Um, I, I plan to keep doing that. Okay, good. Because I want to just keep reading your book. So you <laughs> so i it will be like time management for 80-year-olds. <laughs> like what I'm doing
2: right now. 80-year-olds are going to need some specific advice geared to their age group. In fact, that might well, be a good book Well, maybe I'll write about right different now.
1: things. Like, I, I, you know, <laughs> so maybe I'll allow myself to get more eccentric in my old age. And we'll write about whatever random thing I want to.
2: I just came up with your next, how about like relaxed parenting lessons from a mom of five? Oh There's something to mm-hmm. that. Let's file that one. Okay. Um, <laughs> the $1 million charitable gift is now in your hands to distribute. So where's it going?
1: Yeah. So, I, I mean, I've thought about this, like, you know, I, I definitely like things like, you know, if I'm doing locally, I think there's a big need for like food pantries and stuff, especially now. And, A million isn't enough to do much, but I think if you concentrated it locally, if I gave to food pantries in Philadelphia and New Jersey, like it would make a difference and in a small geographic place. Now, sort of longer term, as I'm thinking about those, and maybe if we added a zero or two to this number, I like these. There are a couple of programs out there that provide fellowships um, for cool ideas. And the idea is, you know, you give, say, a Somewhere like you know fifty to hundred thousand dollars a year as a stipend for somebody who's doing something really cool, so they can you know scale it up. Like they have a little bit of time uh, to to make the idea bigger, to um, you know bring other people on board for it. And so I, one of the things that I've always thought is kind of <laughs> my economics thing here is is using more like free market economic principles, you know, the libertarian side of me in here, for solving social problems. And one. You know, think I' thinking about this. Um, I interviewed a hedge fund manager many, many years ago, who, among the charitable things he was doing, was a program that paid math teachers extra. And the idea was that if you are coming out of college and you have a math degree, you have a different set of options and jobs available to you than if you are coming out of college with, let's say, an English degree. And so if you want to go teach, you are taking more of a pay cut than the people who have a degree that is not necessarily as associated with with high paid things. And so in order to get really good people into teaching math, he would pay them more. And, you know, like school systems can't do that very easily in terms of collective bargaining. It's very difficult to pay subject matter teachers more or, or things like that. But. Somebody coming in from the outside, sure. Why? Why not? They can give them money, um, and so that was what he was doing. And I thought that was a really cool idea as a way to like raise the caliber of, you know, math teachers, for instance. So, but that's like the kind of thing that I think would be a really, I would want to find ideas like that and fund the people who had come up with them. Who you know, then they could bring in other people as well, so that you know, and bring in other sources of funding. And, and they could network with each other too. Like that would be part of the fellowship program is that, you know, we'd all get together twice
2: during the year and talk about their ideas. Free Market Economics Foundation Fellowship, the Vanderkam. The Vandercam <laughs> Fellows. Yes. I got a Vandercam to do this. <laughs> that sounds kind of good, I got to say. Well, I love that. Okay. Well, I'm also going to, since we do have a few minutes left, ask you the other great question you asked, which is, and it may be similar along the lines of what you just mentioned, but- what strikes your eye when you are looking at magazine titles or you're browsing and you're clickbaiting? Like what, what gets you all excited to click on it? <laughs> I mean the clickbait is different than what
1: I've what I've been randomly obsessed with lately is reading about early human evolution. And I don't know if you saw that one coming,
2: but a little because of your reading reports. My, my, I feel reading, like there's been a little of that yeah, theme in your so book
1: blogs. There are in, in the course of, of human history, there were other human-like species that were on the earth um, concurrently with Homo sapiens in some cases, and in some cases prior prior to Homo sapiens. Um, and we are just like learning about them now, like the Neanderthals, the Denisovans. You know, there's uh, Homo heidelbergensis, uh, the the Flor the Flores Island in Indonesia. There was like this hobbit species of humanoids. Uh, so there's all this crazy stuff. And, you know, in one version of human history that you think of as like, oh, well, you know, coming up from chimpanzees, like this straightforward evolution, but it wasn't like that at all. Like there were species that came and then it went extinct um, and that there were, you know, then genetic mutations that branched off and then there were others. And so then what led to the point where then, you know, Homo sapiens became the last ones about 40,000 years ago. And, And there's many theories, but a lot of it's speculation because we don't really know. I mean, we're we're basing this based on like a set of knuckle bones in a layer of ash found in a cave somewhere in you know, Iraq. Right. Like that's what the level of, you know, the fossil um, evidence that's there. And so people are, have to speculate like what what happened. And so anyway, I find the Neanderthals just fascinating. And so I've read like literally five books in the last month. On early human origins. Uh, and so that's my current topic of obsession. But I go through these, like I went through a civil war phase like two years ago that I read like literally 10 books on the civil war from different, not, not perspectives, but different people who are in it, like, you know, different like grants, memoirs, like, um, you know, uh, Frederick Olmsted, who also design Central Park was also a correspondent who traveled around the antebellum south and and wrote all sorts of things, dispatches from his time there. So that was fascinating to read. Um, you know. Anyway.
2: What is one of those theories about how? <laughs> <laughs> about what what? <laughs> about how the how the Homo sapiens won out. Uh, well, so I mean, there's the
1: idea that the the ancestors of of Homo sapiens were sort of evolving in Africa. There was like a a, a bottleneck at some point, like it went down to very small numbers. But d- at the same time, you know, there had been a spread of of this um, Heidelbergensis species into Europe, and that uh, evolved into the Neanderthals. And then some something happened around fifty thousand years ago that that you know they were able to capitalize. The Homo sapiens were able to capitalize on their cultural advantages on their brains, developing new things, and and they were able to spread out. And as they came into Europe and other places, they just, you know, displaced another species. Same as, you know, there's evidence when, when Homo sapiens came into, across the land bridge from Asia into the Americas, like all the massive megafauna died out within about like a thousand years of them getting there. And and it's probably the exact same thing that happened. Like, you know, the competition for resources with other humans, it's just like, you know, humans reproduce slowly. So if there's one fewer baby per year, like a, a species will die out. And the same thing if like if you were hunting one more mammoth a year than you should have, like the mammoths will die out. And so it's probably a very similar dynamic. We're like displacers. That's we so like interesting. Displacers. Although in the case of the Neanderthals, there, there were things that happened in the course of the displacing, which is why there's a lot of Neanderthal DNA in modern humans as well.
2: Yes. I've read you can actually find out like how much, how much Neanderthal. Neanderthal you are.
1: <laughs> I think I'm saying it wrong too. It's supposed to be Neanderthal or something because it's German, oh, but uh, oh, whatever. Well, know, you know.
2: <laughs> we will accept multiple pronunciations on this podcast. <laughs> Well, that was fascinating. You're right. That wasn't the deep dive I necessarily expected. Well, one last question. We're 28 minutes in. What is your love of the week this week? (laughs) Doing date nights again.
1: Oh my goodness. Like, you know, it had been seven months. Um, and then we realized that we have a window of time on like Monday evenings that works. Um, and so, for the past you uh, know, couple of weeks, like every other week or so, um, we've gone out to a local restaurant. Um, it's not very full or you can sit outside and, and it's kind of sad. I think a lot of these restaurants will not be here in a few months, which is horrible and terrible. But, you know, doing what we can to try to get back out there eating at some of them. And um, it's been really nice to have some time when the kids are not on top of us. Um, you know, although curiously enough, we now actually have some time during the work day when there's no kids on top of us because there are a few hours of overlap when all the kids are now at school. So there you go.
2: Well, that is wonderful. Well, this was fascinating. We learned all about bad Disney World rides and Laura's soon to be foundation someday. <laughs> as, well, <laughs> as well as the as, well, <laughs> as well as, yes, exactly. Some anthropology stuck in there. So that was fascinating. We'll have to do this again sometime. Exactly, I enjoyed this. (laughs) And I enjoyed interviewing you last week. So there we go. All right. Well, this has been best of both
1: worlds. uh, This episode, Sarah has been interviewing me. We'll be back next week with more on making
2: work and life fit together. Thanks for listening. You can find me, Sarah, at theshoebox.com or at the underscore shoebox on Instagram.
1: And you can find me, Laura, at lauravandercam.com. This has been the best of both worlds podcast. Please join us next time for more on making work and life work together.
0: Bean Dad, The Dress. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new, season two.